0: It's good to be here this morning, good to sing praises and to meditate on the Word of God, and uh, you can be praying for our family. Uh, We got the stomach bug this last week, but praise God that I am clear of it, so don't worry, and if anything, we can pray for you and uh, put hands on you so that God would heal you. (laughs) You know, I want to ask you a question as we begin. What is the cause of two people coming together? Now, what's very interesting is that there are billions of people in this world, but only certain types of people seem to congregate together. Only certain types of people come together to do something or connect quickly. And there are common interests that bring people together. Sometimes it's fishing, maybe it's basketball, music, singing. Other times it's cooking or a reading club. On a larger level... People come together to end world hunger, or to dig wells in Africa, or to find a cure for cancer. These are reasons why people partner together. And sometimes it's simply by rooting for the same team, which is exactly what happens in the Bay Area during the playoffs. It seems that everyone puts aside their differences, their backgrounds, and comes together in the one main common denominator, is this sports team called the Warriors. Now, it's fascinating what humanity is capable of when they unite for a certain cause. While we're on the subject of basketball, I wanna take you back to the historic moment in the Warriors' time of 2016. This is when they were up three to one in the NBA playoffs, one more game to be the champions, and they lost the next three games in a row. George is shaking his head saying, no, that that was the sad reality. And after that, Draymond Green gets on the phone and calls Kevin Durant. And so Kevin Durant decides to leave the Oklahoma Thunder and join the Warriors, creating for the next three years a dynasty that nobody was able to overcome, comparable to Jordan's Bulls of the 90s. Now, there's a specific goal in mind when Kevin Durant left the Thunder it was to win championships. It was to attain the highest level in the NBA. Now, the nature of the relationship between Curry and Durant was friendly. They played well with each other. And although Kevin Durant was the better player on the Warriors, it was still Stephen Curry's team. And it got to Kevin Durant after some time. And uh, the reality of the egos and the personalities made this team not last long. Only three brief years later, Kevin Durant left one of the greatest dynasties in the NBA, This partnership was characterized by fondness for each other, a love for the game, and a strong desire to win. But just two championships later, and a third one lost due to injuries, it was all over. Now, why are we talking about basketball this morning? Is it because your associate pastor loves it? Yes, that's true. But also because the Apostle Paul is speaking of his partnership with the church at Philippi. And he explains the nature of his relationship with the church at Philippi, with the saints that he is writing to. Now, as we look at our passage this morning, there's two main verbs that Paul uses. I want to turn your attention to verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So this idea of thankfulness. And in verse 9, it is my prayer. And so he also prays for them. Look at the nearness of the Apostle Paul, who's currently in prison with the Christians at Philippi. In verse 7, he writes this, I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers with me of grace. In verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. This is not a distance relationship. This is not a cold partnership. This is not just supporting a missionary somewhere across the other side of the world who you don't know about. The Apostle Paul is pouring out his heart and he describes his love for the church, his joy for them while he is praying for them, and his confidence that God is going to complete the work that he began in their lives. Now, last week we looked at four vital views we need to have for growth or partnership in the gospel growth. We need to view ourselves as partners, view ourselves as slaves, as saints, and members one of another. And how we view ourselves is really going to dictate how we live out our Christian life. Who we believe we are overflows to then how we act in our Christian walk. And we saw the themes of gospel and partnership, and this morning we're going to see an inside look of what the relationship or what a relationship of gospel partnership looks like. Now I think this passage can help us in one of two ways. Number 1, it's going to help us understand what relationships within the church that are centered on the gospel look like. Remember what brings two people together? What is a common thing that bonds them? Well, what bonds Christians together is what Christ has done on our, on our behalf. The work that he has begun in us this work of salvation. And we see here that Paul is million million Paul is miles away from the church at Philippi physically, but he is so near to them spiritually. At times, relationships in the church can be near physically, but can feel distant spiritually. We'll see today that there's a deep-rooted understanding of the gospel that is this, that is the foundation for the sweet fellowship that we desire to have in church. So that's the first reason. It's going to help us understand what relationships in the church could look like. Second, What partnership for gospel growth looks like with those who we support financially? This is exactly what is happening here at the Church of Philippi. They are sending financial support to the Apostle Paul who is in Rome in jail. And currently our church supports missionaries in Bolivia and in Ukraine. And one of the joys that I had when I arrived at Gateway was that I noticed that you guys actually visit those countries You actually go and you partner with these people and you have a real relationship with them. And you go and you teach there. And you go and you visit and you help in various areas of need. You know the missionaries and they know you. And even this past year, one of you mentioned that it's easier to pray for your missionary when you actually meet them. When Matthias Jr. visited us last summer. And so my desire and hope is that as we analyze the relationships around us, They would be marked with thanksgiving and prayer. we see at the core of what brings us together is God and his gospel. And so the proposition this morning or the idea I want to leave you with are marks of genuine partnership in the gospel. Marks of genuine partnership in the gospel. What characterizes people who are linking arms to do gospel work? what characterizes people who are not working together to win an NBA championship, but strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and the salvation of souls. And the first one is, as already was mentioned, thanksgiving. In verse 3, Paul begins with these words, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So we develop or we desire to develop a gratitude, a gratefulness for those in partnership. This is the how of thanksgiving that we are going to look at. How is Paul thanking them? When is this happening? We see that this thanking is ongoing. It's a present tense. I thank my God. I continuously thank my God. Every time that I think of you, not just sometimes, and notice how he prays. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul is not burdened by them. Paul is not frustrated that they're having some disunity. More than that, Paul is confident that the good work that God began in their life, he'll bring to completion. Paul is grateful that although no other church entered into partnership with him when he left Macedonia, the church at Philippi did. And so he is praying continuously for them. He is praying with joy because he has this relationship with them. And more so, we see here, Paul thanks God for them. I thank my God. Paul understands that the relationship that he has with these believers is only because of what God has done. It's all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, Look with me at verse 7. He writes this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And here's the reason why. For you are all partakers with me of grace. You've experienced the same grace in Jesus Christ that I have experienced. You're partakers with me in this grace. Now, why is Paul thanking God? You know, it would be interesting if someone would come up to you and say, I thank God for you. And we know that phrase. It's a very common phrase that we use. But what if this person literally just spent the whole day helping you out at your house for the last 12 hours and you walk up to them and you're not saying, well, thank you, Jerry, for helping me out. You say, Jerry, I thank God for you. We would say, Paul, are you a little bit distant? Why can't you just thank the church at Philippi? I mean, they had Epaphroditus who almost died bringing you this gift. Why are you thanking God for them? Does everything really have to be Through the gospel lens, aren't we humans as well and have a relationship with each other? The answer is this Paul sees his relationship with the church at Philippi through the lens of the gospel. Because it is the gospel that brought Paul and the saints at Philippi together and nothing else. This is the common interest that they have with one another. What makes the person that they are, except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes you the kind of person to be grateful for, if not for the work of grace of God in your life? You are deeply and profoundly changed by the work of God in Christ. And this is why Paul is thankful for them. I always like to tell my wife, That you don't want the old Dennis. I like to tell people in church, you don't want the old me, the unsanctified, maybe just repented me. You want me who's been walking in the Christian faith for now over 15, oh, 20 years now. Time flies quickly. You see, it is the work of God in our life. As we mature, as our spouses mature, as our children mature, we thank God for the work that he is doing in their life. Because it is the gospel work, it is the work of grace that really changes us. So, Paul specifically praises them in this way. And that is the how of thanksgiving, how he praises them continuously and with joy. The question is, why is he thanking God for them? This prayer of joy, of remembrance, is not arbitrary. In verse 5, we see the answer here. Paul says, Because of your partnership, In the gospel, from the first day until now. It is because of your partnership. And specifically, what Paul is speaking about here is the financial partnership. In chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, we meet two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Paul speaks of Timothy, and he says, I have nobody like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Really, Paul, out of all the Christians that you know, of all the churches that you've planted, there's nobody like Timothy who is genuinely, who really cares about how you're doing? And then Paul speaks about Epaphroditus, who nearly died bringing this gift from the church at Philippi to Paul who was in Rome. And so the partnership that Paul is talking about is this partnership of finances that Epaphroditus was bringing on this journey to Paul. Now, when was this first day? If you go to chapter 4, verse 15, I want you to see it. The first day was the day that we read of here. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, in verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that is the day, when he was leaving Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except... You only, So that was the first day, and that partnership continued until now, the day that Paul is writing this letter. We see here the fruit, the power of the gospel, that it connects people through the years, that it connects people who are living in different destinations, that it still bridges people who have different circumstances in their life. This partnership that he's speaking about is literally the word koinonia here, to have in common. Their partnership, what they have in common, is the work of Christ. True Christian fellowship is deeper than sharing coffee or pie or even a golf game together. True Christian partnership is deeper than an acquaintance or just friendship. True Christian partnership And fellowship is possessing eternal life that Christ has given. That is the common denominator that brings us together. The fellowship of the gospel. In chapter 2, Paul alludes to the same thing. And he says, if you are going to be one, if you're going to be united, remember the riches that you already possess together. He speaks about the fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit that a person receives after the new birth, there's also the fellowship of his sufferings in chapter 3. Now, what does the partnership here look like? Because of the partnership in the gospel, we said it's a financial partnership. So they supported the gospel. They financially supported Paul. and This is what Paul has in mind here. But they support the gospel because initially, at first step, they believed the gospel. If you remember in Acts, we read that Lydia was the first convert in Philippi. And not only that, but they have also embodied the gospel. They have made hands and feet of the gospel through Epaphroditus, who comes and sacrifices his life. This transformed life works together for gospel growth. And so Paul is encouraged by the fruit of the church at Philippi. that He writes one of the most quoted verses by Christians, probably a verse that you think about weekly, at least on a monthly basis. A verse that you use to counsel people when they're going through hard times. A verse to encourage saints when they seem to have drooping knees or things are getting tough. It is this verse that speaks of the faithfulness of God. And Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. What Paul wants to do is he grabs our attention with this word, I am sure of this. What Paul is saying is, listen up. Guess what? God has begun a good work in you. Now, why does Paul do that? Because he's capturing their attention. There's specifically something that he wants to illustrate about God in this verse. There are many different ways that we can use to describe God. And the question is, why does Paul describe God as the one who began a good work in you? When you think of God, what comes to your mind? What names come to your mind? What descriptions come to your mind? The giver of life, the king of the ages, the God of peace, the creator, maker, blessed and only sovereign, invisible, only wise God. Ancient of days, Paul, why did you decide to use the phrase, the one who works in you or the one who began a good work as a description of God? Because Paul is highlighting something here. What Paul is highlighting is that God is going to continue the work that he began of this partnership of the church at Philippi and the believers, and he is not going to abandon it. Think about the context of what is going on right now. Paul's in jail in Rome. The Philippians are experiencing opposition from their opponents, suffering all around. And there are those who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Not everything looks pretty at this moment. You would say, it's time to pull out of the situation. I guess the mission didn't re- really work out like it should have. Now God began the good work. The finances are under-budgeted. We have staffing shortages. Specifically, there's certain persons are in jail who can't do the work. And then you have the political tree-huggers opposing you. So I guess we need to stop. But Paul says, no, it's God who began a good work. God is working. God is doing something here. God is accomplishing salvation. God is doing gospel work. Specifically, we're talking about the good work of partnership in the gospel with the church at Philippi but more so the good work of the gospel in general. And what is Paul alluding to here is the fact that God has begun salvation in the lives of these believers, and this salvation is characterized by work. In Ephesians 2.10, we read that God created us for good works that we should walk in them. What does it mean that you are saved by God? What does it mean that you have a changed life? It means that you are a worker in his kingdom. And so their salvation and their maturing is this good work that God is going to bring to completion. Now, how often do we begin something but don't finish it? That project in your backyard that's already springtime and you said, I I was going to plant those seeds earlier in January. I was going to plant that tree so that I could have some kind of harvest in the fall. What about that wonderful Christian book that was recommended to you? What is a church member? We were even giving them out for free here at Gateway, and you opened it, and you started reading it. And you began, and then you closed it and put it down. What about when we start cleaning out our garage, that place, the black hole, where everything just goes because it doesn't find a place in the home? And you began, and you don't finish it. What about a diet? That you begin wanting to eat healthier. The New Year's resolution that lasts five and a half days. Then you're back to chips and salsa. This is not how God works. He'll bring to completion the thing that he begins. And this is the assurance that we have. This morning, if you're wavering in your faith, remember, he is working out what he's already worked in you. He has already worked salvation in you, and he is working out that salvation. See, this is not a good work for you. As we read in verse 6, there's this little little preposition here. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, not for you, but in you. God is doing something in you. He's going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You see, we have here... This idea of justification of Christ for you on one side. And then we have sanctification on the other side of Christ in you. And it is this specifically, the sanctification, the working out of the salvation that Paul is speaking about. Christ has began this work in you. Paul later on says in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is why we have hope. We're not ultimately saved because we prayed a sinner's prayer at a certain age. We're continually being saved by Christ in us. Too many people look at this verse and say, well, he began a good work for me. He justified me. So however I live my life, it it matters, but it doesn't really matter that much. Some of Paul is speaking about here. He's saying, it is Christ in me. The good work that God began in me is going to bring to the completion at the day of Christ. And what is this day of Christ that he's speaking about? When is this day? It is the day of judgment for unbelievers and a day of reward for believers. That is what the day of Christ is in the New Testament. So God has begun this good work in you of salvation. And how encouraging is it for us to understand that this work of salvation is not a stagnant work. This work of salvation is, is not also an easy work, but it is a work that we can do because there's somebody who is working in us to accomplish his purposes. Is that when we get weary and we get tired and we get overwhelmed, he is doing this work in us. And he who began it is going to bring it to completion until that day of Christ when we see him face to face. And so, how do you view God? Are you encouraged that he is working in you when it comes to your prayer life, how are you praying for people? Are you praying for them with thanksgiving and joy? When it comes to why you are praying, are you praying because of the deep union you have through the gospel? Obviously, Paul is speaking about his partnership with the church at Philippi and himself, and they are supporting a missionary, the church of Philippi is supporting Paul, but... On a bigger scale, we also understand we are all partners together for gospel growth. And we are, when we are praying for each other in the church, are we expressing thanksgiving and gratitude and saying, I'm grateful for so-and-so in our life? I'm grateful that God is working through them and God is using them. Are you doing it with joy? Now, Paul continues to give reasons why it is right that he thinks this way about them. These reasons are a little bit more personal, beginning in verse 7. We see here that the reasons that he gives for things given is that he holds them in his heart. He holds them in his heart. I realized in my life over the years that the only way that I will be ever holding people in my heart is if I am praying for them. It is if they are dear to me, If they are on my mind, the people that are in our hearts are people that we are thinking about. Paul is thinking about the church at Philippi on a personal level. And I have to ask you, is this how you feel about Matthias Sr., Matthias Jr., about Roman, those who we have partnerships with in the gospel overseas? To hold someone in our heart is not to know that they simply exist. It's not to be acquaintances. It's not to briefly think about them. It is to be bonded by a deep connection, something that is weighty, something that when someone is going through, we have compassion, which means that we are experiencing with them whatever they are going through. And this is what Paul feels about the church. He gives us the reasons why, For you are all partakers with me of grace. You are working with me. This is why I feel this way about you. I hold you in my heart because we're doing a greater work. We haven't just come together to win NBA championships. No, we've come together to make Christ known in his glory. We have come together to bring light to dark places. We have come together to drop the gospel bomb that transforms the lives of everyone who comes in contact with it. And so therefore I hold you in my heart because we have a greater cause and a greater purpose. You're all, For you are all partakers with me of grace. Where? Both in my imprisonment. Well, Paul is in prison and experiencing opposition, later on we're going to read in this chapter in verse 15, let's even read it right now, where he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that it will, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So here we have the, the defense imprisonment and a defense and confirmation of the gospel. They have a deeper why for what bonds them, simply beyond their favorite sports team, their hobbies, and the things that they like to chat about on the weekends. This is what brings us as a believer, as a vision, a unified goal, when there is a great commission. We support growth of the gospel overseas because of what God has, is doing. This is a partnership. This is what brings people together. And I think of my experience when I went to India for the first time in 2019. And I met Vijay. And after a 25-hour flight with a layover in Shanghai, and then an overnight stay somewhere in India. Don't ask me where the city was. We flew down to Andhra Pradesh. And there we were for 10 days teaching a group of 60 pastors through the book of Mark how to teach narratives, specifically the New Testament. And so we split up the, group, uh, the, the pastors into two groups. One group of 30, another group of 30. And we had a translator because I didn't speak Telugu. And so... As we were working there, we were there for 10 days, I'm building this relationship with VJ, who's just a few years older than me, has a couple kids, has been recently married, his wife from Minnesota, but they decide to move. She moves from Minnesota, and they get, they, they're married, and they're living in India as missionaries. We're sharing life together. We're playing card games. I play cricket for the first time in my life. I don't know why anyone plays that sport. But we had a good time. He shares with me about his desire to train locals who live in a 1040 window. if you know, the 1040 window is the most unreached area between 10 and 40 degrees latitude or longitude, whatever it is. place where three percent, really, of all finances go to support, place where a missionary is hard to go there because of the opposition. And he says, "I want to, I want to train the locals from this area in India." and then send them back out. And then I come home 10 days later. And then about two years following that, I read a message on Facebook. And it's not like I've never read about people who are experiencing hardships as missionaries overseas or believers who are persecuted in hard-to-live countries. But he posted about how there was a lot of gospel advancement in the villages that they were in and they were experiencing demonic opposition, and he wrote this. Our kids wake up in the middle of the night screaming for no reason. We are suddenly becoming sick. Around 3 a.m. we are wide awake not knowing why. Abigail has a panic attack at night, which she had never had before. I'm having intense headaches that won't go away. Last two Saturdays I couldn't even go to church because of an inexplainable blood pressure spike, even though I'm taking my medicine and eating well. Right now as I'm typing this souvenir, his oldest son, he was around like three at that time, wakes up shouting no. There are lots of other things that make us feel under attack. Please pray for us. We must be a threat to Satan because these people are the most lost in the village, the high caste, and they're responding very well. Amazing things are happening. I read about things before, but there is this partnership. There is this meeting, there is this conversation that I've had, there's this relationship that I have with this man overseas that when I read this, it impacts me and hits me more than what I've read in the last month prior to this. This is what partnership is, and this is why Paul is saying, I hold you in my heart. This is why I hold Vijay in my heart, and every year he visits, I am so excited to have to host him. Paul is saying... One other thing in the next verse. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The church of Philippi are near and dear to him. The affection is this idea of the inward parts, the bowels, the deepest level in his gut. And that is the affections of Christ Jesus. It's not so much that Paul's love was channeled through Christ. It's that Christ's love was channeled through Paul. The affections of Christ Jesus. And this is how you can be in jail, experiencing hardship, but still have great love and affection for the people that you partner with. It's because of God's sustaining grace. Paul's circumstances did not hinder their relationship, and so he holds them in his heart because they're gospel partners. This holding it in his heart, these affections, they were continuing firmly because of the power of the gospel. And as we think about this first section of thanksgiving, thanksgiving that we have for people that we are in partnership with, those overseas and those locally here, I want to ask you, are you grateful for the people that God has surrounded you with in your life? Are you grateful for the people that God has begun a good work in? Are you grateful for your spouse? Are you grateful for gospel partners overseas? And if you, when you think of, Partakers of grace, those people that God has placed into your life, do you pray about them or for them with joy? Do you hold them in your heart? Do you yearn with them with the affections of Christ? Friends, this is what relationships within the church should be characterized by. And I believe if I was to push a little, some of you might be thinking, well, this is not how I feel about people in church. This is not how I feel about those who we partner with. And then the question naturally arises, what is the nature of your partnership with them? Have you experienced a true gospel connection or is your partnership based on similar interests, hobbies, and topics of discussion? You see, what I've realized in the church is that when we are connected at the deepest level of what Christ has done for us, our relationships with one another are deeper, our Our bond is closer. Our sharing of life is on a different level. It goes beyond just the icebreaker questions and gets to the bearing of burdens and the care for one another. When you have this partnership, you experience the sweet fellowship, the deep longing, the long conversations at night, the relief of intercessant prayer and the peace of support. As I got to Gateway... I'm glad to say this is exactly what I have experienced, and I want to thank you for that. I've been overwhelmed by your love toward me. In the last year, we've become gospel partners, working together in this city, in the Bay Area, to make Christ known. And it has been sweet. It has been enjoyable. It has been a journey. And we love it. Both my wife and I, we love you. We love Gateway. And we are so grateful for your support and care. And so not only does Paul thank God for the saints at Philippi, he also prays for them. And this is where we find our, our second main verb in our text. It is my prayer. He prays for them. The thing that Paul prays about should be the things that we pray about. This should be the content of our prayer life for our missionaries and those within the church. If you ever at a loss of what to pray for people, you know, sometimes you might be praying for someone and you're thinking, well, I didn't ask them what their prayer request was. I guess I don't know what I should ask God about them, for them on, on their behalf. There are many lists in the New Testament. Just open any one of Paul's epistles, go to the first chapter, and literally Paul is saying, I am praying that. And you could take those examples that, list and pray for people in that way. And specifically, Paul has given us the content of what he's praying about. He gives us an example, and the prayer specifically here that we should be praying about is an abounding love. And so the second mark of gospel partnership is prayer. Once again, Paul's in jail. He can't visit them, grab a cup of tea, sit down across the table at a cafe and share his heart. He can't catch a short flight and be there in one hour and guest preach. He can't even send them a message over text. He can't post a picture or a story on Instagram or Facebook showing everyone what his day looks like. But what what Paul can do is pray. Oftentimes, we try everything in our life. If it doesn't work out, then we say, I guess I'm just going to have to pray now. But everything must first begin and foremost by prayer. It's not that I guess I'll pray, but prayer is the only thing that I can do. And this is why Paul is praying for them. He is constricted. He is in jail And obviously that's the only thing he can do, but we must understand in our daily life as we are walking with God, we are Paul in the jail, we are helpless, apart from Christ. So what is the content of Paul's prayer? The main idea here is that your love may abound. His his prayer for them is that they grow in love, in this agape love, in God's love. Why does Paul pray for this? Because love is the foundation and the solution to all the problems that were going on at the church of Philippi. Because the love is the foundation and the solution to all the problems that were going on in the church at Corinth. Love is a foundation for unity. We remember in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13 is a rebuke. Love is patient. Love is kind because they are boasting about their spiritual gifts and saying that I am better than you. And so Paul gives us a math equation in 1 Corinthians 13 and says, you could have the greatest gifts minus love equals nothing. You're a gong, you're a clanging cymbal. Love is the summary of the law and the prophets. Love is a fulfillment. Bearing burdens is a fulfillment of Christ's law of love. Your vertical relationship with God, your love of God, is going to overflow in your horizontal relationship with people. You're going to be able to love others. It is by seeing God's love you can view yourself as a saint and as a slave. It is by loving others through Christ you can view others as partners and members of one body. And so in our life, as in the life of the Philippians, if there is no love, there is no unity, there is no sacrifice, there is no harmony. But as Paul writes here in chapter 2, there's only selfish ambition, conceit, and looking to own interests. Look with me in verse 27 of this chapter. Paul, This is what Paul is emphasizing here. In verse 27, he is saying this, when I am gone, when I am absent, Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are doing what? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. How is that going to happen? It is through this abounding love that they have for one another. It is understanding God's love for them that will overflow to the love to the people around them. This is why Paul is praying about love. Jesus said in John 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So the first thing is this abounding love. It's not a stagnant love. It's an overflowing kind of love. I want to give you a few examples of what this would look like. It's the kind of love when you bump into people as you're living life, and you spill over sacrifice, care, and compassion. This is this abounding love that wives would covet, that children would long for, that church members are seeking after, and a love that the world is missing. This is the love that goes the extra mile, the love that has no boundaries or limits, a love that multiplies, abounds, and not a love that decreases. What is the worth of your love? Paul is saying you should be rich in love, abounding in love, You should not have $5 love. You should have $5 million of love. How much love can you give if you have $5 million of love? You can give a lot of love. You can give a lot of $5 and 20s and even hundreds. And it'll take you a long time before you get to top out that $5 million. What Paul is saying, your love should abound so much that you are always increasing in this love, this love is always being full to the brim so that you are able to serve others. The only way to have this kind of abounding love, we all know, is to soak ourselves in the love of God for us. It's to take our time and read through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and see the riches of God's love toward us. It is to read Romans 1 through 11 and see how much God loves us It is to read Philippians or Colossians 1 and 2 that we started our our time here this morning and see God's riches in Christ for us. It's to be so overwhelmed by Christ's love, to be like Paul who says it's better for him to die and to be with Christ. Christ's love for him is so great that as he sees Christ's love for him, he says, all of my accomplishments are like rubbish. Friends, if we want to have this kind of love, we don't need to go seek after it or work it out we simply need to sit under it and the more that we sit under this love and are captivated by christ's love we don't need to be given so many commands to live the christian life and so paul prays for abounding love he prays for wise love paul uses two words here knowledge and discernment to describe this love what do we think of when we think of knowledge think of this intellectual knowledge that it may be static. What Paul is talking about here is experiential knowledge. I don't want your love to simply be a love that you have a PhD in. I want you to actually work in the workplace with this love. Our love will only grow when we put it into practice, not simply understand the concept of it. Love doesn't grow in the classroom. Love grows in the workplace. Love grows in the kitchen where you need to sacrifice. Love grows in the living room where you are parenting your children. Love grows outside of your home when you're going on a visit and caring for those within the church body who need care. Love grows when you get on the phone and you call someone who is missing on Sunday at church and see how they're doing. Love takes action. and This is what Paul is saying here. This experiential knowledge This is a wise love. Then you're going to be able to know how to approach different situations in your life. Judgment stands far off, but love comes close. So it is a love of knowledge and a love of also discernment. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So you need discernment as well. Discernment is the, the ability. To distinguish between two things. You see, if I was to give Micah a a box of, of car toys, he wouldn't know the difference between a truck or a dumpster truck or a race car or a minivan. But if I was to give Ezra a minivan toy car, what would he tell me? I don't want that, I want the race car. Or I want, the, uh, I want the big truck. Or I want the dirt bike. See, this is discernment. To Micah, every toy is a toy car. To Ezra, he knows exactly which one he wants and what the difference is. This is a sure mark of maturity. This is a sure mark of discerning love. And why God wants us to grow in this kind of love is so that we will be able to choose what is right so that our lives reflect the gospel and bring great glory to him. This is an agape love that is wise and abounding, a love that blooms. As we're driving around now, it is springtime and we see a lot of flowers are starting to bloom. Trees, the buds are opening up. It is blooming, it's becoming more beautiful. Colors are changing, the grass is green on the hills. And what Paul is saying is when you are, what, what Paul is praying for at the church of, of Philippi is that their love should be constantly blooming like this, bringing joy, flavor, and character to life. And now we also see the fruit of this love. The fruit of this love. What Paul is saying is that your love should abound more and more. What's the purpose? What's the fruit of it? In Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. A person who is maturing is a person who can approve what is excellent. In Hebrews 5, Paul is writing to the Christians and tells them they need not milk. They need milk, not solid food, because they are lacking discernment. They're not mature enough. Paul is envisioning the believers at Philippi have the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. What What is Paul really getting at here when he's praying This prayer. Why, Paul, are you speaking so much about a love that abounds, a love that is wise and discerning? What is the point of all of this? Why can't we just love? Because what Paul's desire is that here is that their life and their energy is not misdirected. I want you to hear this. He desires that their, their energy and their life is not misdirected. That they're not spending time on things that do not matter. That they have discernment to live lives that honor God. That they are enabled to see the best way to live in light of the day of Christ. In light of the greater purposes of God. So grow in this love. That they are able to live lives worthy of the gospel. That they may choose humility and service towards others instead of selfishness. That they may boast not in their achievements but in the cross of Christ. That they may have an eye toward eternity since they're already citizens of heaven. That they may continue in the partnership that God has placed them in for gospel growth. That they may be able to think on that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If anything's worthy of praise, think about these things. That there may be people who are not anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, they may make their request known to God. That they may do all things without grumbling or disputing. They may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom they're shining as lights in the world. These are all verses later on in Philippians. Why Paul is praying for them like this is because he does not want them to waste their life, to waste their energy, to not misdirect the purpose of their life, but to see that it is for Christ and his glory. And so that they, when they come to the day of Christ, they may be pure and blameless and not be in a shame coming to the end of their life thinking, I've wasted her, I haven't lived it sufficiently, I haven't lived it enough for God's glory, but come to that day pure and blameless. We're reminded, and I love this verse in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See the second coming of Christ, what it does is it causes us to live holy and rightly and blameless today. Christ has left us here on earth with a purpose. And he's told us what to do as a church. He's given us to one another's of the New Testament. He's given us a commission. He's told us what we are to do on our mission. And when he comes back, with all the talents and everything that he's given us, we want to be ready for that day. I remember days in my life when I was growing up with my, in my parents' home, and you've experienced it as well, There's something about your parents coming home in 10 minutes that changes everything. Ah, you look at that list. There's like five things to do. I have 10 minutes. Okay. Irina, do this. David, do this. We got to get this house back to order. We got to put things where they're supposed to be. We got to finish our chores that we were commanded to do when mom and dad left three hours ago on a shopping trip. And all of a sudden, just, Ten minutes. They're about to be here in ten minutes. And you're running around trying to finish everything. Get it all ready and set up. Paul is desiring for us, God is desiring for us to grow in love and understanding the high depth breadth of the love of Christ, be captivated by it so that we can live a life that honors him, make the right choices to glorify him. In the end, Paul reminds them of who they are in Christ. <clears throat> they are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ himself. It is by their union with Christ that they are who they are, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, that comes because of Jesus Christ, that comes from Jesus Christ, fruit of righteousness, not, 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 their, not their work, but the righteousness that Christ has clothed them with to the glory and the praise of God. This abounding love leads to glorifying God, leads to praising God. So what an amazing passage we looked at this morning. We saw the faithfulness of God, that's the work that he began, he will continue. I hope that you're encouraged this morning that no matter where you are in your life, whether you're on the top of the mountains, you're down in the valley, or you're sliding down a hill, or you're walking up the steep path, the good work that God has begun in you, he's going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We're reminded of the coming of Christ. and May you be challenged to live a life that is worthy of the calling that he has called you to. We were shown what we need to be praying for. That we should be praying for abounding love. For in one another's lives and the lives of those who we, whom we support, who are gospel partners with us overseas. And Paul displayed what marks of partnership in the gospel look like. We saw this morning what truly brings believers together. The gospel is what makes us who we are, and the gospel is what gives us the reason for our partnership. And this is going to be the foundation. This is the reason why we would be able to say with Paul these phrases like, I hold you dear in my heart, or... I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ or be convinced that God who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. It is because of the gospel that unites us. In the beginning, I asked, what brings, what brings two people together, two people from different places, from different backgrounds, with different desires and interests? What, what bridges them? What unites them? It is the gospel of Christ. church, we thank God for the work that he has done in our life, do we not? We thank God for the gospel partnerships we have here among us. We thank God that he has united us. And as I look out here, I see different ethnicities represented, different age groups represented, people with different interests represented. Some of us like golf, other of us like basketball. Other of us like fishing. Just to sit there and wait for some little fish somewhere in the water to bite on... We all have different interests. We have different lifestyles, but God brings us all together. It is because the gospel is what unites us. At the deepest level, we have been changed and transformed by Christ. And so are you thanking God for the people in this room? And are you praying for them that they may abound in love? Are you thanking God for our partners, Matias Sr. and Jr. in Bolivia, and roman in ukraine and are you praying for them that their love may abound Father we thank you that your word is encouraging it is insightful that your your word really gives us a firm foundation on what to stand on we can leave this place knowing exactly what we need to do how we ought to live but more than that your word reveals to us who you are your character This morning we saw your faithfulness. We saw this this everlasting love that you have loved us with. You love us to the end. We saw your power and the fact that the gospel continues going forth, although Paul was in jail and limited physically, yet the gospel was still progressing because of this partnership with the church at Philippi. You remind us that the gospel is still doing its work today in a place where we live here in the Bay Area, In the countries that we support, your gospel is doing a great work. And we thank you that we could be partners. We thank you that you have loved us and you have made us your own. And so we press on to make you our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.